to now introduce our speaker for tonight, Allison. Hi, I'm Allison, a compulsive reader. Hi, Hi, everybody. It's so great to see here, be here, and it's great to see old friends. And um, for the record, I am abstinent 17 years and eight months exactly today. And, uh, um, God, I love being abstinent. I just life just before I got abstinent was just at this halting standstill. Even if I maybe was going forward a little bit in my life, maybe if my career was going ahead, barely a little bit or whatever, it's like the inside of me was just frozen solid, you know, as long as I was compulsively overeating. I am a hardcore, pure, compulsive reader. I am a binge eater and a sugar addict. There's no way around any of that. I had a couple of brief periods of anorexia. That was fun because I got to get really, really skinny, um, but it was also a real pain in the ass because it was just like constantly not eat. Um, I tried bulimia. Oh, I really tried. I, my best friend Melissa lived up at the top of Bel Air, and Melissa was really good at it, and she devised all these techniques that we could try so that I could learn how to become bulimic, and thank you, God, that never happened, because I just, I don't know if I ever would have recovered, um, because I am, you'll hear from my story, I just had sort of a lot of funky things happen. Um, I, um, I grew up with two really... Um, unusual parents. They were sort of hippie wannabes, and um, I was an only child, and they were intellectual, and they just kind of did their own thing, and they let me do their own thing, and I was just a binge eater out of the gate. I have one memory of being six years old where I pushed food away from me at the table, and um, that was because I wanted to go out and play. That is the only memory I ever have of pushing food away from the table. <laughs> um, I was always all about more. Even um, my running joke is my first drink was green cream to menthol vanilla ice cream. And my parents dribbled the green cream to menthol on it. I was, I was about six, and I took a bite, and it was really yummy. And then they went out of the room, and they put it on top of the refrigerator of the kitchen, and I crawled up onto the counter, crawled up top of the refrigerator, pulled up, and dumped it on the ice cream. Um, it didn't taste as good as when there was just a little, but I still ate it all. Because um, I never did not eat everything. I mean, you know those people who sit there and go... I had that bite of chocolate. That wasn't great chocolate, and they put it down. I'm like, who are you? you know? <laughs> I never met anything I didn't like. And um, I, uh, I was this sort of chunky, uninteresting, neither here nor there, no potential kid. Just that's it. I was just bland, blank, compulsively overeating my way through my, my childhood. And um, this wild thing happened when I was um, 14, almost 15, so I went on a diet, and I got really skinny. And next thing I know, about eight months later, I was modeling in New York City. That Maybe about a year later, I was modeling in New York City. That's how I went from being just nothing to model. And my very first job was Seventeen Magazine, and my very first thing was the cover. You know, and so it was this real disconnect, because in my mind, and I've been plagued by this well into absence, and, and gratefully I don't have it hardly at all anymore, but I used to have it a lot, which is the... Out, what was happening on the outside didn't fit with what was going on in the insides with me. I had tremendous insecurities, tremendous fear. I was always afraid they were going to be found out. I remember my very first pictures that were ever taken of me as a model was this, with this photographer named Stephen Mizell, and he was this brand-new photographer, and he, um, he wound up eventually doing Madonna's book, Sex, um, and he wound up being this really famous photographer. But at the time, he was brand-new, and he put me in this Perry Ellis wool outfit in 90-degree weather in New York City, and he put this horrible makeup on me, and he took these pictures, and they were the only pictures I had, and, you know, I had just been sent to New York. I'm 15 years old. I'm by myself in the city, and I take the pictures of the agency, and I'm crying because I know they're going to put me on an airplane and send me home, and I'm so bad. And they're like, oh, these are fabulous. But that could almost sum up my whole life. I'm crying because I think that's it. They finally found out that I really 
suck. And, and someone else would say, no, you're incredible. And I'm like, I don't get it. Um, and uh, what happened, the hardest thing, I modeled for two years um, in New York City and Paris and Germany and Los Angeles. And I, I couldn't stay as skinny as I needed me to be. If, if I was 112 pounds, I'm 5'8", if I was 112 pounds, I worked steadily. If I got up to 115 pounds, it stopped. I was taken to shoots where I'd gone up to 115 pounds. By they booked me, and by the time they booked me, because I am a compulsive eater, to the time that the shoot actually happened, I would have gained those three pounds, where they didn't even put makeup on me. That all these other models, they were putting makeup on them, and they didn't even bother to dress me up just because of three pounds. And, um, but I could not stay that skinny. I was just, I was desperate. I was, like I said, I was 15 years old. I was 16 years old living in Paris by myself, you know, and it just... I just had like, a lot of older men hitting on me. I wasn't a virgin at that point, but I just, it, it was just this really confusing time. And the only thing that helped me cope was compulsive overeating, was just preferably sugar, but if not sugar, just quantity of anything. Because what it did for me is it numbed me out. It didn't make me high. It didn't, I mean, it, a lot of sugar could make me pretty low, but all I was shooting for was even. I just wanted to be checked out. I had such a hard time coping with life on life's terms. I had such a hard time walking out the door in the morning without just being afraid, you know, just terrified. And um, my natural state, I have to say, um, would be, if I wasn't in program, would be with the blinds closed, um, preferably wearing sweats, with TV, back then it was VCR, so I've been in program for 21 years. Um, it was VCR with um, cream puffs and um, eclairs from the local bakery and, uh, and a bong. And just watching TV, you know, getting high and eating. That was Mecca. It was the ultimate. And um, um, what happened with New York with modeling is that eventually I couldn't do it. I just I couldn't stay that skinny. And just to qualify and tell you what kind of compulsive reader I would be is my last days in New York, I would wake up in the morning. I was gaining a pound a day. I would wake up in the morning. I would go downstairs. I would get... Um, Remember, it was like it was yesterday. I would get um, a Boston cream pie and a carrot cake. I'd go upstairs and eat it. Then I'd go back downstairs again, and I'd get a tuna sandwich because I needed some salt. And I'd go back upstairs, and I'd eat that. I'd come back downstairs, I'd get a toddler on a chocolate croissant, and I'd go back upstairs, and I'd eat that. Then I would be feeling kind of full. And, um, and so then I would just sort of let that full feeling, all it takes for me as a compulsive reader is that full feeling just to go in a little bit, and then I can put more in. And, um, and I just did that all day long, day in, day out, until finally my dad called me in New York one day and just said, I was 17 years old, and he said, come home. And it was, it was awful. And, you know, then I tried for a really long time um, to get back to it. I, I once got kind of skinny enough that I could model again, and... And it was just too hard. It was really tough to be in a business that was just all about my looks. That could care. I already had no personality that I could speak of. I mean, I didn't know what perfume I liked. I didn't know what colors I liked. You know, and to, to have, um, to be in a business where it was all about how you looked. I'll never forget when I took my portfolio once to Avon, and this woman looked at it. She's like, oh, my God. I mean, she just thought, she went ape. She thought I was a second coming. I'm like, cool, I'm going to get to work for Avon. And then she walked in this other guy's office that was just right next door. I could hear everything. She put the book in front of him, and she said, look at this girl. Isn't she incredible? And the guy says, she's not that great. You know, she's okay. The woman came back in, totally deflated, never heard from Avon again. You know, and it's like, it's that kind of stuff that just messes with your head. And, and if you've got an eating disorder, man, you're just closed. Because my eating disorder was all about what my head was telling me. My head was nonstop talking. And it was either talking to me about um, what a loser I was, or it was talking to me about how fat I was, or it was talking to me about what I'm eating or not eating. It was just 
constant, just this constant just chatter motion in my head. And um, what eventually wound up happening is um, I had to get out of modeling, and I wound up um, um, going on a hike with my dad in the Grand Canyon, and he, we met this woman on the hike. We met this woman on a hike, and um, she had a sister who was a therapist, and I went to this therapist, and I walked in her office, and, and thank God she was in this program. And uh, she... On her very first session, she said, I really want to put you in an eating disorders unit because my disease was just so rampant. And, uh, and I said, awesome, okay. And I go home, I told my parents, I said, I have an eating disorder. I mean, this is like news to all of us. And um, <laughs> um, I just had no idea. And, and they said, oh, honey, that's so great. How much is it? And this is 1985. $10,000 for a month in 1985. And, uh, and my parents were like, no. <laughs> and, uh, so this therapist um, very wisely sent me to another 12-step program, which I did and tried to do and kind of didn't do and then left and then, you know, kind of came back. And I wound up in that other 12-step program, but at the same time, I wound up needing to come to Overeaters Anonymous because I just knew, you know, it's like there was just something going on here. And um, it's really interesting. And I told you my absence date is June 17, 1989. I actually came here in 85. And... Uh, and I came religiously. I had a sponsor. I went to a lot of meetings. And my abstinence, um, well, first off, I really needed to get an abstinence. And it needed to be three meals a day with fruit in between and no sugar and obvious dessert forms. And that is actually what my abstinence is today. Um, with a slight variation sometimes, but absolutely no sugar in obvious dessert forms ever. I do not take a bite of cake and think, oh, that was yummy. Don't need that. If I were to take a bite of cake, you could just say goodbye to my entire life. All of it. My husband would leave me. My kids wouldn't want to get it because I am a different person when I am in my disease. Just completely different. And um, and so I came to OA and I got, um, I could not get off of sugar. It just, it, God, it was just the most nightmare thing. It's hellish. And um, back then we didn't have all the sugar-free options that we have now. And um, But I wound up, you know, I would have to eat like sugar-free stuff to try to get off sugar because I just, my sugar jones was so big. And um, and I remember, and I went to this meeting, I love it here that you ask for people with less than 30 days because for me, the meeting that I went to asked for people with less than 30 days. And so I kept having to raise my goddamn hand. It's like, hand up, hand up, you know, I was having less than 30 days. And one time I got 29 days. And that was huge. I could not wait to not have 30 days anymore. And um, on day 29 at my office, they had one of those... Um, honor candy things where you're just supposed to put the money in. Honestly, they were always coming to me every month going, Allison, we're a little short. Um, <laughs> I was always broke and I was never putting money into the candy thing. And, um, but I was taking all the candy. And, um, and I got into the candy thing one last time. And, uh, and I had so much shame. You know, I mean, I just felt so low that I had that 29 days that I was so proud of off of sugar. It is a bitch to get off of sugar. It is just, it is hell. Um, and and I had so much shame, and I just had called my sponsor, and she said, let's just try again. And you know what? And with the exception, and I'll tell you why, of some bazooka bubble gum, about three years after that, I haven't had sugar basically since October 24th, 1985. You know, so it's been almost, you know, 20, it's been over 21 years. And, um, and the, the reason why I had that bazooka bubble gum is that I actually, for a period of time, wound up leaving OA, and I was working at UCLA in their... Um, uh, convenience store and bazooka bubblegums at the time had fortune on it. They probably still do. And one of the fortunes was you will marry soon. So I kept e eating bazooka bubblegum because I kept wanting to get the you will marry soon fortune. Um, <laughs> kind of ridiculous. So I, I don't claim 
that is my, my abstinence date because that is not my abstinence date. My abstinence date is June 17, 1989. What happened when I came to OA um, for the first three years that I was in here when I finally did get that, uh, that first one I thought was abstinence date, my abstinence is three binges a day, not to last longer than an hour in length. That was it. You know, and I white-knuckled that, and I binged three times. I sponsored people. I took candles. I did the whole deal, and I was just white-knuckling, and I was miserable, just miserable. And um, finally, after, I don't know, three and a half years, four years, I just came to the realization that I needed to leave. Even though they say here, don't leave no matter what, I just knew I needed to. I was just beating myself up all the time. It didn't seem right. I, I, even though I was going to tons of meetings, like I had a sponsor, and sponsoring three benches a day is not, is not abstinence. And I left, and I just thought I would see what happened. And in that time I left, I tried how. Um, I was, I've never been so homicidal. That's when I did how. <laughs> I need carbs. Um, oh, man, I was angry, angry bitchy woman um, on how, and uh, and I also tried Weight Watchers, you know, I just tried sort of various things during that period of time, and what happened is I had, um, at this point, some time in another 12-step program, and I came to the epiphany that I was no longer going forward, that not, I wasn't eating sugar, I wasn't eating desserts, thank you God, you know, but I could, I could do pretty good on a pound of trail mix, um, and I was definitely eating a ton of food, and um, I just, I realized it's like I wasn't growing anymore. I was just done. I was, I was halted, you know, completely stopped because I was just eating too much. That's what eating does for me. It just stops everything. All growth freezes. And, uh, and I thought, all right, I'll come back. And I'll come back and I'll try it. And I went to Serenity Sunday. And they asked for people who were new to stand up. And I pretended like I'd never been to OA before, even though I'd been to hundreds of meetings. And I just stood up and I raised my hand. I just said... Allison, compulsive overeater, knew. And I did that at every meeting I went to. I just acted like, when they say your first three meetings or whatever, I just acted like it was in my first three meetings. When they say first 30 days, I raised my hand. And I got a sponsor at that meeting. And thank you, God, for Krishana Henry. She was amazing. She, I got her at that straight Sunday. I am emphatic about sponsorship. You know, I go to a meeting. Um, my home group is in Manhattan Beach. And... Uh, I just cannot tell you how many people come into this meeting, especially from other 12-step programs, who don't get sponsors, who just, even people who don't promote 12-step programs, just don't get sponsors. And I'm like, and they're also not getting abstinent either. Um, and I just, I want to shake them. I just want to say, oh my God, if you don't get a sponsor, it just ain't going to happen, you know? But, and, and I don't know what that resistance is. It's, but there's something to me fundamental about the disease of compulsive overeating that makes it so resistant to letting go. I, in my opinion, and in fact, everything here is my opinion, but there's something truly about an eating disorder because we're so private and we're so, fun, in my opinion, so fundamentally isolating that we don't really want anybody else to ever tell us what to do. You know, some of these people in other 12-step programs, they just come in so humble. They're just like, whatever, tell me what to do. I'm desperate. You know, we're so compulsive reading. We come in and we're just like, tell me what to do, and I'll decide if I'm willing to do it. <laughs> but I'm not going to get a sponsor, though, because she might really want me to do something, and then she'll just fire me, and that's just complicated. And so I don't know what it is, but it just makes me crazy. So anyways, um, I, um, I got Krishana, and she put me through some, some step work, some book work, and some step work. And the scariest thing about coming back to OA is I had no idea what absence was supposed to feel like. All I knew was this three benches a day. I, I, it's like... What is there besides that? All, all I thought was that you were going to take away my food and leaving with that gnawing anxiety that, that 
rises so rapidly when I'm not getting what I think I want, especially in terms of food. And I was just terrified, you know. And, and instead what happened, I had so much willingness to do anything. And that's to me the crux around here. It's like I feel like my higher power wants to see me willing to do anything. The good news, he doesn't ask me to do that much. Sometimes, yeah, I have to push through some scary stuff. But for the most part, he just wants to see me willing to push through the scary stuff. Like, really willing. And then the grace comes in. And so I didn't know what absence was supposed to feel like. I didn't know how comfortable absence was supposed to be. It, you know, I think, and absence just changed for me radically. You know, I was thinking about, um, what's this place over here? Soup plantation. Where I used to eat in my first few years of absence, I could eat at soup plantation. That could be a viable dinner. I just thought it would no more occur to me to ever go near that place. I mean, it's just like, yeah. But that's what abstinence is. It, like, it gets the X, you know, where stuff that used to sound good doesn't sound good at all anymore. You know, but that's sort of with long-term abstinence. You know, for me, I try to encourage all the people I sponsor, if you can just gut it out your first year. I never, ever want to feel the way I felt my first year. That was just hard. You know, it takes a lot. It's just a lot of struggle, a lot of surrender. But I say, if you can just gut it out your first year, miracles happen at 366 days. You know, just amazing things because this grace can come in and it can just, it, it just, and it doesn't happen all at once. It's like, absence has just gotten, I wouldn't say it continues to get better because it's actually just been fine for numerous years now. It's just, it's comfortable. I don't think about that much, but I have to maintain it. I have to have a sponsor. I have to sponsor. And I, um, and I need to go to meetings. Period. But, but just by doing those basic things, I get to have this insanely full, living large, technicolor life. My life was so black and white before I got here. It's just so gray. Actually, not even black and white. Gray. Just gray. You know, and now it's just like, God. I mean, I just, I'm, li- I'm, I'm not only living my dreams, I've exceeded them. You know, and, um, and it's because I've been willing to really work hard at it and I've really been willing to change. And um, anybody who ever heard me talk, I used to um, talk a lot up here on the west side. I, mean, I remember once, I talked at so many meetings in one week, um, and some big ones too, I think, that some guy at Harvard Street, after I finished talking, I called on him to share, and he complained about me because he'd heard me share so many times that week. He's like, can we please get some different speakers? And I'm like, sorry, I'm just... They asked me to speak, I speak. Um, and now since I live in the South Bay, I'm like, I haven't spoken up here in years, I think. And, uh, and actually, I haven't been asked to speak at a meeting in a couple of years, I don't think. Um, except for my little little meeting where you talk for seven minutes. Um, and we all hear all each other talk all the time. And, uh, and it's totally fine. But it's just, um, if you had heard me talk, my whole tale of woe was I want to be a wife and a mom. And that was it. I mean, I even had somebody, I spoke at the birthday party a few years ago, and a couple of women came up to me afterwards and said, God, we were so tired of hearing you talk about wanting to be a wife and a mom. (laughs) Like, sorry, but that was just my cross to bear. You know, I had several. One was the work area. One was wanting to be a wife and a mom. Um, One was my mother. Um, You know, and so um, what happened is that I... um, I got abstinent, and I got the absence of Krishna. And um, my abstinence, I said my absence is three meals a day, usually with just fruit in between. Sometimes, like today, I had a little tiny, tiny salad at lunch because I was at some place where I couldn't get anything else. And so I had to eat 
we're having dinner out with my husband and some friends tonight, and that's not so late, and so I had to eat, like, a little half of a sandwich, you know, between. But I know now. I know when I'm hungry. I know when I'm not hungry, you know. Um, also, I do not weigh myself. I have no idea what um, – I stopped during my binging. Um, I stopped getting on the scale as soon as I hit 167. I thought, ooh, who wants to know if that's going to go any higher? So I chose to stay in denial. I'm sure it went much higher. And, um, and the lowest I ever got was 108. And so, but I have not weighed myself in over a decade. You know, I am, in fact, even longer, I'm sure. My um, experience has been, in a way, is that if I get on the scale and it says I weigh more than I thought I should weigh, I get depressed and I eat. And if I get on the scale and it says I weigh less than I thought I should weigh, I get excited and I eat. (laughs) So I just thought, who needs the head trip? For me, abstinence is completely about shutting my head up. You know, I got this chatty, you can tell I'm a little hyper, I've got this chatty, intense head. And when I come here and I work this program and I'm willing to do everything in my power to face my fears, my head gets quieter, and I get to go out there and look relatively normal in the outside world. I am a compulsive overeater. I will always have a slightly unusual relationship with food. The question becomes, to what degree? On a scale of 1 to 10, is it at a 10 when I'm binging my brains out, where I'm just obsessed, with there's absolutely no breathing space in my head for anything else but my eating disorder, or is it like a 1? You know, and I'd say now with program, it's anywhere from like a 1 to a 3. You know, and most times it hovers at around a two, sometimes it's at a one. You know, um, having kids really has wreaked havoc on my abstinence um, because I'm freaking tired all the time. And uh, my sponsor's great. You know, she just said, it's like, you're tired, you know. And and when I'm tired, I want to eat more because I think I'm going to get some energy from that. Um, But I fast-forwarded a little bit. Um, Let me talk about, uh, let's see, should I talk about work, my mother or my husband? Um... Work is fine, but we'll talk about work. Um, just suffice it to say that one thing that did happen with work was I was um, I was in this career, I was in advertising, and I was really unhappy. And uh, I just I'm not just I'm just not a good employee necessarily. I get a little bit entitled. Um, I get a little. I don't really want to work longer hours than the nine to five that they're paying me for, even though everybody else is working harder. And and um, I just. I could do the job, and I could do it well, and people really liked my work, but I just, it just wasn't me, and I wanted to become a consultant, and I just, at the same time I wanted to become a consultant, I read in the big book about this part about fear, and, um, and it's right after the inventory, and if you read, it says, and now we talk about fear, da-da-da-da-da, and you go through it, and I don't know why I just happened to be reading this at the time I was thinking about starting this business, but there was one line in it that just stood out over all the others, and it said, We asked God to remove our fear and show us what he would have us be. And I took that to mean, if I didn't have fear, what action would I take? And so I thought, well, if I didn't have fear, I would check into health insurance. And I did, and I got health insurance. And I thought, because I wanted to be a consultant. And I thought, if I didn't have fear, I'd buy a laptop. So I bought a laptop. If I didn't have fear, I'd quit my job. So I quit my job. And But what wound up happening by taking away, by just taking actions if I didn't have the fear. See, that to me, I think, is such such an eating disorder thing, is that we get that paralyzed with fear, that inability to absolutely go forward and to hang on with for dear life with, I will not let go of this fear. You know, it's like 
this one I cannot overcome, you know, and then everything halts. You know, but when I face my fears, everything just opens up. I may get that initial anxiety, and then everything just opens up and falls into place. And when I became a consultant, just miraculous things happened in my life. I, it just, I got more money than I could have imagined. I got to work the hours, and I became a much better employee because I was getting paid by the hour. And so if I worked long hours, I got paid. And if I didn't work long hours, I didn't get paid. And it, was just, it was just good for me any way you looked at it. It was suited my personality really well and um, and God was good to me and I got a lot of a lot of got a lot of abundance from it and um but I still hated working. I still, um, I'm still just not a great worker. I guess I really wanted to be a wife and a mom. Just period. I just knew that that was my calling and um, and I wound up um, I I dated a lot, um, a lot, a lot, a lot and. Um, and I, not necessarily bad men, but men who just weren't right for me. I kept trying to fit my round peg into their square holes and um, or their triangle holes or their diamond, whatever they were that was different from me. I just kept trying to make it work. And, and I was just determined because I just wanted it so badly. I mean, like I said, you know, from the podium, it was, just, it was obnoxious how badly I wanted this. And, um, and what happened is I started um, in 1990. January 1st, 1999, I met Mark the Cop. You want to talk about a female fantasy? Ha! Mark was pretty. And um, he was beautiful. So much so that we questioned his sexuality later. But I know he goes and uh, my father lives in the Philippines where there's lots of women for hire. And uh, Mark visits there quite often. So we now can attest that Mark's um, sexuality is not in question. But, uh, but at the time I met Mark, and it was this intense passionate and at that point I had developed a sex ideal which was to um, wait three months and to be in love and to be in a committed monogamous relationship before having sex with somebody because I had a little bit of a problem waiting and um, (laughs) and Mark though was like I love you I'm committed to you we're going to get married and so this by the way this is why my husband is not here at this meeting tonight I sent him off over to the wine house to (laughs) buy wine for our dinner tonight which I won't be drinking but um I finally, after like four weeks or something, just gave in because clearly Mark was God's will. And uh, <laughs> it was like six, it was about six weeks I gave in. And, um, and the next day, you know, like when you enter into these relationships with somebody, usually when you start having at it, you have at it a lot because you're just so excited. And the next day, Mark wanted nothing to do with me. And then the next day after that, he still wanted nothing to do with me. I'm like, what's going on? And he said, I'm not physically attracted to your body. Which for a compulsive reader or something, eating disorder is just like, <gasps> I mean, you could not see anything worse. And I had a sponsor of a 12-step program at the time. Um, what I couldn't get a hold of my OA sponsor, so I called this other sponsor. She says, well, maybe you need to go to the gym more. And I was like, <gasps> fired her out. Um, she's gone. Um, so anyway, so Mark broke up with me because he wasn't physically attracted to my body. Um, he likes prostitutes in the Philippines instead. <laughs> February of 99, and in October of 99, um, I surrendered. And this is, this to me, was the purest surrender I've ever done at that point in my recovery. And it was a surrender to God without conditions at all. Not a single condition. And the surrender to God was, God, I trust you. 
my life right now is exceptionally good because it was. And I said, and if I never meet the man of my dreams, because I was like 36 at the time, and I said, if I never meet the man of my dreams, that is okay. And I meant it. It wasn't with conditions. It wasn't like, they'd really like for you to bring him anyway, just in case. Like, this is kind of, you know, one of those, come on, God, let's talk, surrenders. Um, <laughs> it was a real, pure, I give up. I'm not going to do internet dating. I'm not going to flirt. I'm not going to do anything. I give up. And, um, and that was October, and I stuck to it. And, um, and under the heading of pushing through fears, I, um, a girlfriend of mine wanted to throw a party for the millennium at my house. And I was terrified because I didn't want to be the person who threw the party that everybody had a bad time on the millennium. And um, mm-hmm. I really did not want to throw it, but I thought, damn it, I will push through my fear and I will have faith. And it's so hard. It's just such a leaping thing when you just push through that fear and just go, okay, screw my head. I'm just going to take the action whether I want to or not. And that, to me, has been my entire recovery. I take actions even if I don't want to. I'll never forget when I was secretary of a meeting and I asked this woman if she would be greeter and she goes, no, that's not comfortable for me. And, you know, more power to her, but she wasn't abstinent either. And I just want to say, honey, if you just try, maybe you'll get abstinent. But, you know, we all just make our choices. And, um, and like I said, until you really get abstinent, it's hard to know what it's supposed to feel like. And, and, so, and just that fear that it's going to be miserable. And it's not miserable. It's, it's, it's affirming. It's fantastic. So, anyways, um, through this party, and I knew there weren't going to be any guys there for me to meet or anything like that. And But at one point during the party, I was stuck in the kitchen because I was cooking everything, and so I came out of the party, and I thought, all right, I'll just sort of greet my guests. And I come out, and I walk out on my back deck, and I look down, because my deck's kind of high, and I look down on my backyard, and there was this spectacular-looking man. I mean, I'm like, oh! I'm going to go introduce myself to my guests. So, so I walked down, I introduced myself to him, and he's Indian, and he had this freaking funky name, and so I just sort of was like, oh, whatever, I could not remember his name. And I ignored him the rest of the evening, not to play games, not to play hard to get, but because I just knew if I was supposed to be with him or anybody else, God would just make it happen. I did not need to do a single thing, nothing. And... Um, Later in the party, there was a chance someone was running around taking pictures, and I happened to be standing next to him and his roommate. And um, he wasn't supposed to be at the party either. He, um, his roommate was invited, and he decided, he had lots of other invitations for New Year's Eve, but he decided to push through his fear of going to a place where he didn't know anybody except one person. And so that's why he was at the party. And someone took a picture of the three of us. There's me in the middle with Krupal on one side and Matt on the other. And I, to this day, I have that picture with Matt folded out, um, yeah. just Krupal and me. And, um, and the reason why I wanted the picture is because I knew I would never see him again. And I was really proud of myself for surrendering it. And, uh, and sure enough, through a series of circumstances, he got a hold of my email and he started emailing me. And we went on our first date and it sucked. And I thought, when I got out of the car, I thought, we'll never see him again. And, um, but he called. And at the exact same time he was asking me out, my mom um, was, unbeknownst to us, being, getting ready to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And my mom and I had this really, really complicated not-so-easy relationship. And it was only through the grace of this program that we were able to have a relationship because I just learned to act as if, and I had to, when, um, when we were going through that whole process of her being sick and stuff, I had to reconcile myself to the fact that we were never going to have the kind of mother-daughter relationship I, I really wished we could have. And, um, and that had to be okay, but it didn't matter how I felt about it. All that mattered is that my mom felt like she had a good, supportive, loving daughter. Period. All that mattered. What I thought didn't matter. And um, 
and thank God for that, you know, because it was a really crazy time. And, um, and so I met my husband at the same time my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and I didn't know he was going to be my husband, but we just we hooked up, and it wound up just being amazing. And he is such a perfect fit for me. But if anybody had told me, Taylor, we've been together seven years now, but if anybody had told me at any point in my recovery, Allison, you're going to be, how long was I abstinent? Um, over ten years abstinent before you're going to meet the man of your dreams, and he's going to be four years younger than you, he's going to be Indian, he'll have gone to USC, I went to UCLA, and uh, it'll be an engineer. I would have been, first up, I would have slashed my wrist. I was suicidal a lot in sobriety. I would have, if anybody had come to me early on and said it'll be X number, you know, umpteen number of years in program, at that point I was in program almost 15 years, before you even meet some the person you're supposed to marry, that is just information that it's a good thing I did not have. You know, I learned very early on, don't do tarot card reading, none of that stuff. I do not need to know what my future is supposedly supposed to be. I don't do well with that information. It's, it's better for me to be surprised. And, um, and um, so we, we eventually, you know, thank God my mom really had pancreatic cancer. She responded really well to therapy, and we got to have this amazing wedding. And, um, and I always wanted to be a mom, so I was married. And on the, we threw out that birth control the night of the wedding, and we had it. And I was like, we're going to have babies. I'm going to get pregnant right away. I was like 37 at this point or something. Maybe, I don't know if it's 38. And um, it just doesn't happen. It didn't happen. So we went to see a, uh, a specialist. And this is cracked me up. So I told you I had sort of this little problem with um, waiting three months with anybody I met. And, um, and so we're at, with this specialist. And we haven't said boo to this guy. I always said to you, hi, I'm Allison. I'm Krupal. Nice to meet you. First question he asked me, have you ever been pregnant? And I said, no. And he says, well, he knows nothing about me. With the number of partners you've had, you probably cannot get pregnant. Like, what? Neon sign? I mean, <laughs> how do you know? My poor husband has. He asked once, and I said, don't go there. Um, he said, three before me. <laughs> God, that's amazing. So, um, anyways, um, we did the infertility route, and oh my God, brutal, just brutal. Nothing messes with your eating disorder, like lots and lots of progesterone and estrogen and just shots and hormones, and I bloated up, and it was hideous. And, um, and so we did, we did in vitro, and at the same time we did in vitro, my mom, um, her disease um, really progressed, and she wound up having to go into ICU right after we did the in vitro. And it was really incredible because we went um, to the doctor when my mom was in ICU, and he said, congratulations, you're pregnant. And, um, and it was really incredible, and we got to go to the hospital, and my mom just, I mean, we didn't know exactly she was dying, but she had, we had a pretty good idea. And, and um, she just, it was just her life dream. My mom, for as complicated as our relationship was, she loved me. She loved me with everything she had. She just unfortunately came from a gene pool that wasn't so good at being a mother. You know, she really, for, for where she came from, what her mother was like and what her grandmother was like, it's just it's miraculous she was even as good as she was. And so but she loved me with all of her heart. And, um, and so it just really gave her a lot of joy to know that I was going to be pregnant. And, um, and she passed away about a week later. And, um, and it was... It was really sad, you know, but I was also, um, I felt like I was a good daughter, and I felt like I had done the best I could with sort of all that we were working with, and, um, and I knew I was going to be having this baby, and three days later I miscarried. And um, that I have a tremendous faith in higher power. I've got just an unwavering faith that God is going to watch out for me. 
Up until this moment, nothing had ever challenged that faith to such a degree that having a miscarriage three days after my mom, after trying so hard to have a baby, I mean, it just, it was gut-wrenching. And, um, and at one point, everybody was gone. It's kind of weird. Leslie turned the story recently, so it's kind of weird to tell it again. But um, everybody was gone. And I was in my house, and I just got off the phone with my girlfriend who was a pastor, and I told her, I said, I am really mad at God. I am so scared of God. And um, she didn't know what to say, and we hung up the phone, and I just crumpled to the floor of my kitchen and just started sobbing on the rug, and I did not know how I was going to get up. I was devastated. I just, I was terrified. I'm like, it just, it felt cruel. It was it was brutal. I had no idea what to do. I had no idea what was going to happen. And, um... And I just laid there, and I knew that nobody was going to come and tell me to get up. Nobody was going to come say, Allison, time to get over it. I mean, people were going to, people would have gladly let me check myself in someplace for some meds if, if, I, had, if I had wanted it, because it was that devastating. And, um, and I laid there, and I don't know how long I laid there for. And, um, and eventually this quiet voice came to me, and the voice was, I want to see what happens. I just want to see what happens. And um, I, uh, somehow I managed to pull myself off of the floor and just and go forward and um, and I was terrified I was just I was so scared of God at that point because it, it's so hard when something bad happens in your life that you don't see the flip side of it yet to really appreciate that there is a flip side you know and it doesn't mean that good always comes out of bad I, I don't think that happens but but I can but that you could survive and what happens we did another round of in vitro and I had another miscarriage and we did another round of in vitro and none of my eggs even fertilized which is very weird because um, I was a good producer and a good fertilizer I had lots and lots of embryos and not one embryo this round and I just thought it was God just telling me stop you know and um, and that day I got it was June 19th um, 2003 2003 I got on the phone and started calling adoption agencies and I picked an adoption agency and I started the paperwork and like any good truly obsessive possible person I just dove right into that paperwork and I was really really obsessed and about two weeks into it I called my sponsor and I said I'm really really obsessed with this paperwork and um, but my husband wants to do another round of in vitro and I don't want to and, and she's like why not and I said because adoption is God's will uh-huh. and um she said, it's not God's will if your husband really wants to do the run of a nitro. And I just hate that. It's the hardest thing about being married. You really have to kind of like do what they want to do sometimes. And, um, <laughs> the good news is he, he, he kind of goes with mostly what I want to do. And, um, and I said, okay. You know, and I was devastated. I hung up the phone. I started crying when I was on the phone with her. I hung up the phone and I'm just like, I don't want to stop the adoption process. But my sponsor's telling me to and, she, and it's like my husband doesn't want to do it yet. And so I'm like, okay. And we'd only been in the process for two weeks. And to adopt, we were adopting from India. To adopt from India takes about a year and a half to two years. So we're two weeks into it. And um, there's tons and tons of paperwork. There's tons of procedures. There's waiting lists you have to go on. It's a crazy-ass process. And I hung up the phone. And I just started sobbing, my usual fetal position on the bed. And, um, and I said, okay, God. I said, if you want me to halt this, I will. <laughs> and, uh, and so... I was like, okay, and I got off the bed, and I started doing my day, and about two hours later, my agency calls me, and they said, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm great. I don't want them to think I'm depressed, because um, I want them to think I'm going to be a good mom, because um, <laughs> I'm sure this in vitro thing's not going to work, and um, she goes, good, I'm glad to hear that, because we have a really unusual situation. We have a family that went on two different waiting lists, and they'd already gotten assigned a baby from one orphanage when this other assignment came in from another orphanage. Would you 
like to see pictures of this little girl and would you like to adopt her even though you haven't done any of your paperwork? I was like, okay, this is two hours after I surrendered. You cannot tell me there is not a God. <laughs> and, um, and they sent the pictures through, and we said okay. And, um, you know, the fact about Karina that you just you cannot deny is that um, she was born on the day I miscarried, my first miscarriage. She, um, we brought her home um, six months to the day after, um, after I started. We brought her home on December, December 18th. 2003. Um, it was my husband's birthday. And uh, Karina is the absolute light of my life. She is amazing. She's this fantastic little girl. And, uh, you know, uh, just that it was God's will, you know. And we went and did that one more round of in vitro after that and had one more miscarriage. And um, I talked to my husband and I said, I really want to adopt another one because I always thought, I was an only child. I always thought I wanted to have two kids. I thought Karina would do better with a brother. In hindsight, I think Karina would be happier to be an only child. But, um, but I said, okay, you know, let's, you know, let's do this. You know, Dr. Lauren, he goes, let's wait until Karina's like four. I said, no. When Karina's four, I'm not going to want to go backwards. It's, I'm going to be way too grooving on the fact that she's, like, able to do things. And uh, we figured it would take another year and a half to two years. And we completed our paperwork, and we turned it in. And that book is supposed to go on these years longer now in India, a year, year and a half waiting list. And we turned our paperwork in on Thursday, and they called us on Friday. Hmm. And they said, we cannot believe this is happening, but it's happening for you again. You know, we have a little boy that was assigned to another couple who don't want him because he's a year old, and they want a younger baby. Would you like him? And we got our Kevin. And um, so for Kevin, for Karina, it took six months. For Kevin, it took eight months. And I'd like to say that my mother was up there chit-chatting with God, actually more like in his face. <laughs> you know, saying, you know, my daughter will have a child. She will have a child now. She will not wait. Because that's what my mother was. That's what my mother did for me. She just always wanted to make sure that I was happy. You know what? Um, it has been hard having Kevin home. It has been probably... I'd say probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through in recovery, to have this little boy home. He is amazing. Anybody who meets him says that he has that certain something special that just makes him so compelling and so magnetic. I mean, he's just he's breathtaking for everybody else but me. And for me, he is hard. He is whiny. He's hits. He's, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's tough. And you know what, though? I just, I've learned around here, it's like, I just got to step up to the plate. You know, Kevin's not going anywhere. Although I got to admit, when I first brought him home, I thought, can I give him to somebody else? Um, it was that hard. And he's been home a year, and over a year and a half now. And uh, almost two years. May it'll be two years. And, uh, and he really is incredible. And I said, you know what? I, I got on the phone yesterday and started calling some therapists because I need some extra help, like it talks about in the big book, because I can't do it. And I need the only thing that... Um, keeps me going right here. I need to constantly be willing to change. I need to constantly be willing to go forward. I absolutely cannot rest on my laurels and sit back and think, this thing, I'm just going to let it slide. I can't. I will, I will die. I will lose my abstinence. You know, I need to be always willing to change and to become a better person. And, you know, unfortunately, right here, you always have to keep working at it. it does, you don't get, get the option to be lazy. And uh, I love abstinence. And I, I really appreciate trying to ask me. Sheriff feels good to actually tell my whole story. I haven't done it, you know, except for some other, other programs. And it just feels really nice. You guys are great meeting here, and thanks for letting me share. Yeah. Yeah.